we make our way through Genesis, the last few weeks we've been we've covered Genesis one and two, um, and now we're going to start in on Genesis three. Uh, it's a long chapter, and we're going to cover the whole thing today. If you've read the chapter chapter three, um, or it may have been this week, it may have been a long time ago, but chapter three is all about how our first parents sinned and fell and sin entered the world. Okay. And as I was reading it, um, you, sometimes you just kind of read through it and you're like, that's a great story. And you don't really sit and dwell and think about it. Um, and, and that's the one great thing about, about preaching is you have to really sit and meditate and really let it stew. Okay. So as I, I was going through it, I was like, yeah, this is a long thing. I probably, I can make something up. And then I'm going through it and I'm like, okay, this is, there's a lot. There's a lot here and I won't get to it all. Okay. Um, just in the scope that we have here. Um, but I pray that the Spirit uses me to teach to your heart, to convict us where we need convicting, um, comfort where we need comforting, but above all, that the Spirit may make God nearer to you, and that you might know Him more, and that you might love Him more, and glorify Him in our lives as we go out of here. Like I said, today we're covering the fall. While it records what happened and how sin entered humanity in this creation God just created that we'd read about in 1 and 2, the account is also good storytelling with many intricacies that are not immediately apparent. And while we will be reading of the account of how sin and rebellion entered into humanity, this is also an account of how of humanity today of sin today, a story that happens over and over again in our lives daily. Another great thing about this passage is that in it, we already see the gospel story begin to unfold. So we'll definitely be going over that today. We need to know this story well so that when we study rest of scripture and the gospel, it becomes richer to us and helps us understand other parts of scripture and to understand God better. The other great thing, as I mentioned before about this passage, and we always kind of joke about this, but it is, this is what perfect, this is a perfect passage for a three-point sermon, okay? So today will be, if you uh, like to take notes, um, the church, uh, those, a lot of us have this, uh, you know, if you want to hold it up, this <laughs> Genesis uh, journal note-taking um, book. You can, you can write these in here. We'll be looking at it in, in the text in these three headings. The fall, the curse, the plan. The fall, the curse, the plan. All right? But first, at the risk of being really long, I think we're going we're gonna to read the whole story, Genesis chapter 3. So you can turn there, and we're gonna follow, you can follow along. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV version. But it's good storytelling. I thought, well, maybe we shouldn't read the whole thing. But then I thought, well, you know, it's, it's a good story. It's, it's nice to follow along. So let's do that. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God did say, God said, You shall not eat of the tree, fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. For God knows that when you eat of it... Oh, sorry, I skipped. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of them were both opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, 
I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you should go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way, every way to guard the way to the tree of life. All right. Long story. We won't read through the whole thing again, but it's good to know all of it. Okay? As we go through this, I actually am going to turn right back into it, and we're going to actually go back a verse and start from there. We're going to start in Genesis 2.25. and says... And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay? This is important to note. Adam and Eve, humanity was exposed. They were vulnerable, but in the best way because they were safe. They were loved. They were innocent, provided for, and richly blessed. They had perfect, unbroken fellowship with God with each other, and with creation. They were the beloved creatures of God, taken care of by him, given tasks to do, given love, given all things. God was good to them and had nothing but good planned for his beloved and precious creation that he had taken the time and detail to make and delighted in. All was, as God said, very good. We don't know how much time took place between this statement and the story we just read, but we transition quickly in the Bible from one of the greatest to one of the greatest tragedies ever, ever told. I started with this verse to reinforce the tragedy of what happened, to reinforce the tragedy that we still see in the world today, but to remind us, as we will see, of what we will experience again again someday. This is our great and only hope. Again, Genesis 3. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So for the scope of this sermon, I don't want to get into the woods of talking about a talking snake and why Satan had chosen this form to speak to Eve. There were actually lots of interesting um, questions and contemplations that kind of arose through my study this week of that. So if you, we can, we can talk of that sometime. It's interesting. But, but what I do want to focus on is this one part. The Lord God had made. You see that in the verse? 
while only referring to Satan here as the serpent, we know through other scripture that this serpent is in fact the chief of the fallen angels himself, known as Satan or Lucifer. At one time, he was an angel of light. An angel of light, one of the Lord's attendants before he himself rebelled by wanting to become God. But the important fact here is that he is made. He is a creature, okay? A powerful creature, okay? But a creation nonetheless. I say this to remind you all that while he is considered our adversary, the adversary, he and his followers, the other fallen angels, he and his forces of evil do not threaten God in any way. God is the uncreated one. The one from whom all existence, time, space, matter, spirit, life, he's the one from whom all existence flows. Only God is all-powerful. Only God is all-knowing. Only God is all-present. The serpent, Satan, is a created being. He can only be in one place at a time. He has many followers to do his work, but he is a created one being himself. So while powerful, he has limits and can only do as God allows in his sovereignty. But like I said, this does not mean that he is not highly intelligent and highly powerful, especially compared to us. He is, as the Bible says, more crafty than all others. I start with this because while I'll be talking about much about the evil, uh, evil's device, or sorry, the devil's devices and schemes, how he and his forces tempt us into sin and evil. The Bible also says in James 1, verses 13 through 14, it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But here, listen, but each one of us is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. So then, while temptation first came to our first parents through Satan, it is also now in our sinful nature, in our own evil desires. Temptation comes from the adversary, yes, but also from within, from our own sinful nature, our own desires. That's what the fall has done. Okay, so we'll keep going. With Satan here then in this story, already fallen, already hating God, but not being able to touch God, he tries to destroy that which God created and loves. But also notice throughout this story, Satan does not come to physically destroy this creation. You notice that? He cannot do anything but tempt. And to do, truly destroy them, he must do more than physically harm them. He must separate them from God. To ex and, and to do that, they, Adam and Eve, must choose someone or something other than God. To accept lies over the truth. This is why Jesus calls him, Satan, the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. Scripture warns us to be prepared for his schemes. We'll be going over those today. So while we see this first temptation here, I don't want you to miss it, okay? If it continues today in the way that we choose something or someone other than God as our true treasure and affection, and to believe lies over the truth, to truly do harm to them, to us, the father of lies continues to try to separate us from God, the giver of life. As Matthew Henry says, what he, Satan, speaks to them, of whom he had no hold by any corruption in them, he speaks in us by our own deceitful hearts and carnal reasonings. This makes his assaults on us less discernible, but not less dangerous. We'll go on then. So I only read a little bit of that, didn't I? Well, let's go on. Um, I, I read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
Well, in these verses, we have the masterful way in which Satan first tempts Eve. Okay? Now, I think an example of how he continues to do that today. He said to the woman, well, from this verse, from this little phrase here, well, and maybe a little bit later, I, I said here, and then I read a little bit later, and I thought, well, maybe he is. But I, I said here at first, we don't actually know if Adam was right beside her. Later on he is when, when she hands the fruit to him, but we don't know quite if, if Adam is, is here at the same time. Some people say yes, some people say no. But in this case, let's, let's just say he wasn't here, okay, right at that time. One of the principles we see in the story then is that he, Satan, divides to conquer. Okay? Temptation comes, becomes much more effective when you have no support system, when you face it alone, when the church family isn't around you, when your friends aren't around you. Have you experienced this? Have you ever noticed this? I know I have. It becomes much greater, harder to resist. He said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What's happening here? He's trying to get Eve to doubt. To doubt her understanding of God and to doubt God himself. It's another way to tempt. He begins, if you notice it, in a tone insinuating that God is too harsh. Did God actually say, I mean, if he was really good, would he? I mean, can you really believe that he would keep you from that from you? Then he insinuates that God, well, maybe he doesn't really love you like he says he does. Maybe he is actually withholding something good from you. Right here, he's introducing all of that doubt to her. Just a seed of it. Planting it. Notice the rest of the sentence. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what he said, is it? Right? And theologians are thinking, well, Satan was, he was, he was somewhere listening to all this. Okay? And he's, he's introducing this as a way around it. But listen to how he does this. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. He's, he's emphasizing what they can't have. Sowing discontent. He misrepresents the command, does he not? Twists it around just a little bit. He belittles her, scoffs, creates that insecurity. It's like he's saying, are you really naive enough to believe God when he says not to do this? And then he focuses on the command as unreasonable, as if you're saying, well, that's just silly. He can't expect that from you. Why would he do that? You don't deserve that. To all this then, Eve responds, actually really well, correcting the deception. But here, this is the thing, and the fact of her response is probably her mistake, our mistake. This mistake is don't dialogue with Satan. Don't dialogue with temptation. Just turn away. Don't give it a foothold, as Scripture says. What if Eve had just turned away? What if she had just turned to Adam? What if she had just sought God? Well, what if you, me, we just turn away? What if we look for someone right away to seek help? What if we seek God? You see, this still happens today. It may not be a serpent speaking directly to you, but what have we done to convince ourselves lately that what we want to do apart from God is okay? That God is being unreasonable? That he's withholding something from you? Like I said, Eve responds rightly. She says, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you should not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. And she adds, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But Satan uses that response to continue the dialogue. Again, crafty. To continue to chip away at her resolve, he says, you will not surely die. 
you won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God. You will know good and evil. So right here, it's not just a twist of it. He straight up lies to her, does he not? He knows that disobedience to the command leads to separation from God. He knows that. It's a lie. He knows it because that's a spiritual death. It's happened to him. He knows it. But he chips away at her resolve, gets her to doubt further. He denies any danger in disobedience. You will not surely die, he says. It's not as bad as all of that. It's just a little thing. It can't do any harm to you. What does it matter? It's not like it's harming anyone. Does that sound familiar? Finally, then, as opposed to disobedience for even harming her, he continues further, and he tries to convince her that it's actually good for her. You won't die. It's actually good for you. He promises her, then, her, them, that it would be to their advantage to eat from this tree. You won't die. You'll actually get better. It's as if he says... You won't die. In fact, on the contrary, I happen to know the secret that God is keeping from you. If you do this, you will actually be better for it. You will know what God knows. And in fact, you will be God yourself. You will discover what you have been missing out on. He tells them that he knows better. He knows the secret, that God is lying to them, that there is no penalty, but actually great improvements in intellect and satisfaction. That they would see what he sees, that they're missing out. He tells them that they will be their own sovereigns, in control of their own destiny, be as gods themselves to be served. That they could know of good and evil, but be above it, not actually experience it and take it into themselves like they will. In all this, as I've said before, his aim is to sow discontentment at the current state of things. Get them to think that they're missing out, that they deserve better, that others have it better, and they are not being treated fairly, that God is withholding something because he doesn't love them as he said he did, that he is preventing their full potential. And when we get down to it, his aim was to get them to think what he thought himself. That they were fit to be God. To turn their thoughts to themselves. To think about themselves first. And herein lies the core of the sin. We call this pride. When we make more of ourselves than God. When we make ourselves to be God. Church, think about this in your own life. When was the last time you thought these things? And I want to make sure that thinking these things is not the actual sin, but it does lead to it. This won't hurt me or anyone else. No one will know. I've had a rough day. I I really deserve this. If God really loved me, well, what about me? Who's thinking of me? Church, we're going to go on, but reflect on this passage and meditate on it. Think about the schemes our adversary uses, okay? Think about your own sinful nature and your own desires, your own voice that seeks to convince you, to assure you that disobedience is not that bad and that there is life in it, pleasures to be had, that God is not the most satisfying. It's good to know how you are weak, and how the enemy will attack. Finally, Matthew Henry says, all this is opposite of God. God is not afraid he'll lose control, and God did not withhold from us, but intends only good. Let us think then well of God as the best good, and think ill of sin as the worst of evils. Let's go on in chapter 6. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And that it was a delight to the eyes 
and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Up until this point, then, we've only seen the devices, the schemes of our adversary. It was temptations we had been discussing. And again, as a reminder, temptation itself is not the sin. Jesus himself was tempted by the devil. Even using similar tactics, you can read about that in Matthew 4. But how we respond to the temptation determines whether we will choose God or own our own desires. And in this passage, we'll see the progression toward disobedience, towards sin, towards choosing self over God. Right here, Eve has gone from focusing on God and what he has told her to do or not to do. You see that? Shift the focus from God to focusing on the tree, the object of desire and what it can provide. Here's another lesson then. Sin happens when we divert our focus, our greatest affection, to something or someone other than God. It happens when we forget that what we are really seeking, only God can truly fulfill. So we focus on getting it from somewhere else. And in this story, what is Eve seeking? Well, first, she saw that the tree was good for food. Yes, one of our basic needs is food, sustenance. So here's one of the areas we can be weak in and and one in which Jesus was actually tempted himself in Matthew 4. So Satan often starts here, getting us to think that God won't provide, so we must provide for ourselves. But unlike Eve, Jesus responds to this effect, saying effectively that God provides all our needs. That's how he responds. But Eve continues. She keeps progressing. She says, so it goes on. She says, when she saw that it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, she's now not only looking toward this other thing as her provider of sustaining life, but also as her joy and her happiness. Her want of finding and sitting in the presence of happiness, joy, beauty, greatness, she was beginning to see in this object She's beginning to see all that and not in God. And finally, as the progression goes from sustenance of life to joy and beauty, it ends with that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She was seeking truth, enlightenment, life fulfillment, outside of the source of truth and ultimate wisdom himself, God. You can even see her contemplating in all this, looking at this, Right? So here's our final progression then, and what happens to us still, if you've noticed it in your life. We listen to the temptation. We lose focus on God and start focusing on that other thing. And we lose God as our greatest affection. Like I said, we lose God as our greatest affection, changing our focus to, to find our ultimate needs somewhere else. Focusing then on what that thing or person can give us. How we will find our ultimate wants and needs fulfilled in it. How we will find life's secrets and truths fulfilled, our deepest longings met in it. And through this progression, we worship something other than God. Then we read, she finally did it. Here's the tragedy. She took the fruit and ate it. She entertained it up to that point, but then she finally disobeyed. She finally made the choice. And if that weren't enough, she, being deceived, offers it to her husband. Because we don't have a lot of time to get into Adam, and I won't say a lot of here about him, when there's a lot to be said probably about the roles of husband and wife and the reversal God had intended and such, I don't want to focus on that here and on, on gender, what she did or what he did not do. What each of them did applies to us all still. Adam was either there, was e sorry, Adam was either not there to protect his wife or he was there and did nothing to do about it. Nothing to, he didn't stop it. He did nothing about it. But finally, unlike Eve, unfortunately, he was not deceived. He chose Eve over God. 
So he too chose someone else as his greatest love and his greatest loyalty, and he chose it over God. And so it happened. The the tragedy was complete. The separation happened. Death occurred. Not physical death. God is merciful there. But separation, a death from God happened. Separation from God, life himself. A death worse than physical death. Shame, guilt, fear came over them. Completely new sensations, tragic feelings. Something that God does not ultimately want for us. I'll end this point saying, Matthew Henry again, says, The falsehood of the tempter is this. He, Satan, promised them they should be safe. But now they cannot so much think themselves as so. He, Satan, said they would not die. And yet now they are forced to flee for their lives. He promised them they should be advanced. But they see themselves abased. Never did they seem so little as now. He promised them they should be knowing, but they see themselves at as a loss and, not, and know not so much as where to hide themselves. He promised them that they should be as gods, great and bold and daring, but they are criminals, discovered, trembling, pale, and anxious to escape. They would not be subjects, and so they are prisoners, bankrupt. That's the fall. Point two, the curse. Won't be as long as point one. So we know that God sees all things, right? And he knows that this is happening. And we could stop and ponder a lot of things right here, which we're not going to do, but some of those things like, why didn't he stop it? You know? How does this sovereignty work with our choices? How then should we show love to God? But in the interest of moving God, we'll just say God knows that this is happening. He knows that it's happened, and now he needs to confront them about it. He needs to deal with the transgression, the rebellion, the sin, and how he does this is important. Okay? So verse 8 We read, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That doesn't seem very significant at first. But it is. What could have God done? He could have come in fire. (laughs) He could have come charging Injustice, full retribution, completely justified. But what did God do in his mercy? He came walking in the cool of the day. Tragically, though, the men and wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Who would want to do that? Someone who's, who's separated from him and doesn't want to be in the presence of the Lord because they're now dirty. God asks, here's the other merciful thing. Where are you? He asks us these things not because he does not know, but to get us to know what we have done, just like he questioned Job, Right? He's more than asking a location of where they are. He knows that. It's more of, what condition are you? Why are you far from me? What have you done? You are my friend and favorite, whom I had done so much for and would have done so much more for. Have you now forsaken me and ruined yourself? Has it come to this? Where are you? Notice, also, God pursues them. Did you notice that? 
instead of coming immediately in retribution and justice, wipe them out and start over, which he could have rightly done. He comes to them patiently, lovingly. And here we see the heart of God in the gospel. If God did not come for them, if he did not come for us, they, we would have been utterly lost. We would have become like the fallen angels beyond saving, forever separated. In response to God, Adam doesn't come out and admit anything, though, if, you, if, if we read on. But in his response, he kind of does. Again, God questions us to get us to realize and admit what we are and, and what we have done. And in response to Adam's shame at being in the presence of God, God further questions him. He further pushes Adam. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Of course he already knows. He's God. But how will Adam respond? How do we respond to him when he exposes our sin? Will we admit it? Will we own up to it? Recognize it for what it is? Fall down at his feet and seek his forgiveness? Notice Adam's response and many times our own. What does he do? He blames. He tries to preserve himself. He wants to save his image, save his life by avoiding responsibility. Instead of repenting and turning to God, who gives life, he throws the responsibility of his choice, his rebellion elsewhere. And kind of the daring thing... Who does he throw it to? God himself. Not even really to the woman. He says, the woman you gave me. Verse 13, God then says to Eve, what have you done? How does she respond? In the same way, right? She blames. The serpent deceived me. And I ate it. I'll say in his aside, at least she didn't say, the serpent you created. <laughs> the serpent deceived me and I ate. Blame. And then we get into the judgment in verses 14 through 19. I'm not going to read it all right now, but um, you can kind of skim over it. The Lord God said to the serpent, and then he goes into the sentencing. The judge sentences but what follows is not a questioning of the serpent. Notice he questioned the man, he questioned the woman, but he doesn't question the serpent. Because he doesn't want to try to get the serpent to do. He knows, he knows Satan already. He's not saving him. He's here to save the man and the woman. Right? He goes straight to judgment for him. The judge issues the sentence. But as we read through this sentence, we notice even in judgment, we see his mercy. And this is wonderful. So in reverse order, we see the judgment of Satan, then Eve and Adam. And we see the curse of creation that Paul speaks of in Romans 8.20. So point three then, the plan. Most importantly, we see a glimpse of the beginning of God's planned to not leave us in this state, to redeem his creation back from where it fell. Mercy and judgment, the mystery and the love of God present. So in verse 15, this is, this is what's called um, in church lingo, the, um, oh gosh, proto-evangelicum. Yes? How many of you have heard that before? Yeah, some of us? Proto-evangelicum. The pronouncement of hope, the gospel, is given, and I think, I don't know if ironically, but in, it's given in the sentence to the serpent. Yes? It says, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, that offspring, shall bruise your head. He shall crush you but you will only bruise his heel. This pronounces more than just mankind and snake kind. This is the cosmic battle, the story of creation, a war between the offspring of the serpent, 
those who would make themselves God and her offspring, those who love God and ultimately the one offspring, Jesus, the second Adam, as we've referred to him, who would love God fully and truly in our place. And notice this war already has a decided outcome. He, referring to Jesus, the one to come, will bruise your head. In other translations, crush you. He will crush you, Satan, while you are only going to be able to bruise his heel. Satan has sought to destroy God's creation. He ultimately is impotent, impotent though, right? God, through Jesus, will and has crushed his head. He will crush him, thwart his purposes once and for all, and he does this through his creation. By becoming himself man, God, through Jesus, he's able to save mankind and all of creation through taking on the full punishment and judgment he must fulfill in order for us not to be any longer separated. This is the gospel, the good news. So a few points I want us to to go over as we kind of round this out here. So verse 15, again, verse 15 is called the Proto-Evangelicum, okay? It's the prophecy of redemption and restoration. We've fallen, and like this, God has a plan. He already knows. He already knows all this and how it's going to happen. I want to I reinforce verse 9. I think I said this before. But it says, But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? What is he doing here? He's pursuing them, right? He pursues us. And in Christ, he pursued all of mankind. God pursues. In verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Again, a little bit of a, one of those hidden things there, but what did God do? He covers their sin. They tried covering it themselves with their own loincloths, but it wasn't sufficient. We try to cover our sins by what we want to, by way outweighing the good with the bad, right? Well, if I have more good and less bad, God has to accept me. He has to. I'm twisting his arm. Nope. That's not how it works. The gospel says he pursued us. He covers us. And it's right here already. We see it. And then last thing, verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. This seems like something maybe kind of cruel, but What God is actually doing here is protecting him, protecting mankind, right? Until the whole redemption and restoration process happens so that he won't live forever apart from God. God is pursuing, covering, protecting, and restoring. I know we kind of... I kind of go long. I, I promise we don't have too much longer left, but I do want to turn to Romans 5, 12 through 19. If you want to follow along, otherwise you can listen. But listen to this. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, 12 through 19. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of one to come. Listen further. But the gift of God is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses, many trespasses, and it brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more 
will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of the righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, here it is, church, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. You see, in the first Adam, we see ourselves not loving God, rebelling, being his enemies, not loyal to the, and loving to the one who created us and loved us and had only good for us. But Jesus, known as the second Adam, reverses this. You see, when Adam and Eve were tempted to find their ultimate affection in someone other than God, they failed. When Jesus was tempted with the same thing, he conquered. When faced alone in the first garden, when no one was looking, the first Adam failed. When faced alone in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus succeeded. When Adam could have obeyed and received the fellowship of God, he didn't obey. When Jesus was asked to obey and receive condemnation, wrath, he did obey. Where the first Adam was not faithful, the second Adam was. You see, except for this one time, Every time God asks us to obey him, he promises fellowship and goodness. He said to the first Adam, obey me about the tree. Love me to the end. And I will love you. And I will bring my fellowship to you. And, I, and my love to you. I will be with you. And you will be in my glory. You will be with me. But Adam didn't obey Jesus was the only one in history where God said to him, Obey me about the tree, the cross. Love me to the end, and I will forsake you. You will receive not love, but wrath, punishment, and separation if you obey me. And Jesus obeyed true love and loyalty. Obeying the command about the second tree was far more difficult than the first, but Jesus obeyed and loved God to the end. And the plan of God is this then. Through the disobedience of the first Adam, mankind was separated from God, what we continue to do daily. But, even in our failures, through the obedience of the second Adam, through him, we receive redemption and restoration. We are again with God. You see, in verse 15, we see the greatness of the love, power, and glory of our Lord. He didn't just leave us. He already knew how he would save his beloved, his creation he delights in. And so he set in motion the plan. He stepped down to us. He pursues us. He redeems us. By taking on the punishment we deserve for dethroning God in our everyday actions, in our very nature, praise God for his indescribable gift. Praise him for his love and mercy. Praise him for doing away with evil and sin in Jesus. And now, church, we have been set free to love God and serve him as he created us to do. In Ephesians it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works. Nothing you could ever do or have ever done so that no one can boast. And here's this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So, church, 
because he pursued us, let us now pursue him. When temptation comes your way, when the enemy feeds you lies, distracts you to find truth and your ultimate affection in creation, remember that God has already secured you. He is one. You are purchased. You are redeemed. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Think about his love. Think about his goodness. Think about his mercy. Think about his glory. Think about how he is the one to satisfy your true and ultimate deep down longings. Then church, let us press into him. Cling to Christ. Pray, read, and meditate on his word. Love him. Love others. And finally, when the day comes, we will fall into his arms and find rest and peace, shalom forevermore with our love, the love of our life, who loves us. Let's pray. Father, in this passage we see the greatest tragedy that's ever happened. We are separated from you, and we see that today. We're not in full fellowship with you, but praise God, we're not going to dwell there, because praise you, Jesus came. God, you pursued us. You know we couldn't make it back to you. Nothing that we can do can restore us to you. We may not be as bad as we can be, but we are as bad off as we can be. But God, but you came to save us. You pursued us. You cover us with the righteousness of Christ. Jesus, you died in our place. You took the wrath that was meant for us, our rebellion that we deserved for violating the true, holy, mysterious, majestic, perfect God. And now we get to be with you because Christ took on that punishment, took on the wrath that was deserved us. And we get to be with you forever. We love you. We give our lives to you. We want to glorify you. Help us to do that in your strength. It is in your precious and holy, mysterious, majestic name.